Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's the end of the week. It's a Friday, June 9th, 2023. As always on a Friday, we do a Summary of tech news for the week with my old friend Keith Tier, which we did earlier today. And Keith and I in particular, as we so often do, talked about artificial intelligence, all the controversies around that. There have been a couple of interesting essays on AI this week, one by Mark Andreessen, um, the, uh, the dome-headed venture capitalist who invented Netscape and is now an enormously influential and controversial figure who believes that AI will save the world. And then from Wired, uh, usually a, a booster of the tech industry who believes that Andreessen is wrong and that AI isn't going to save the world. If anything, it might screw the world. And then, of course, there's always the essays on technology just being a tool, a thing without value. We talked about that. And you can never really talk about AI these days without talking about open AI and a certain Sam Altman, who is uh, the CEO there and has been over the last few weeks, it seems, on a global tour, a global PR tour to tell the world about his own particular feelings about artificial intelligence. Uh, and we are continuing that discussion today with my guest, uh, Bob Muglia. He is the author of a new book, The Datapreneurs, the Promise of AI and the Creators Building Our Future. Bob is a longtime tech executive, very successful uh, career, spent mostly at Microsoft. And he is joining us from a rather rainy Seattle, Bob. What have you done to the weather? Well, I don't know. It was beautiful. We've had a beautiful June till now, but I'm glad we're not getting the smoke that the East Coast of the U.S. is getting. Yeah, well, that's that's what happens, Bob, when you come on my show. It rains and I'm going to rain on your parade. The datapreneurs, the promise of AI and the creators building our future. As I said, there are the optimists like Mark Andreessen, who I'm sure you know, and then those who are a little bit more skeptical or even pessimistic, ironically enough, the folks at... Uh, Wired Magazine, where do you, does your book come out of? Or are you one of the people who say that AI is just a tool and we can't make moral judgments about it one way or the other? Well, I do think it's, I, it, today it is a tool. Uh, it may be more than that at some point in the future because it is advancing at a very rapid rate. And that's where we do have to be thoughtful about what we, how, we, how we evolve it and the values that we create for it. Uh, but I'm an optimist. I mean, I've always been a technical, technical optimist, and I've watched technology change the lives of literally everyone on the planet at this point, or virtually everyone. I think more people carry a cell phone than have access to a flush toilet, which says something. And, and technology has done a lot of good. AI is a tool which will be applied in an unbelievable variety of ways to help people. I think it's going to benefit mankind a lot. And there are some things to be concerned about in the long run. Bob, it's an interesting remark you made. I've heard that before, that more people carry a smartphone uh, than have access to uh, a toilet, a modern toilet. What does that say about the state of the world, about telephones, smartphones, or toilets? It says toilets are hard. <laughs> Actually, I mean, you have a lot of infrastructure you need to, to, to build a modern sewer system, and a lot of the world doesn't have it. 
I, you know, Bill Gates spent a lot of time working on perfecting a toilet for, for developing countries that don't have access to that infrastructure. And, uh, you know, these, some of these things that, that humans deal with on a day-to-day -day basis as we advance are challenging. Uh, very large parts of the world have been able to bypass the wired infrastructure that was put in in the, in the U.S. and Europe and in many parts of Asia and have gotten very wireless. And, and that's going to be wireless on, on toilets or on phones. No, on phones, and that's why phones can work. Toilets are tough wireless. They don't work so well. <laughs> yeah, maybe Bill Gates can come up with an innovation there. Um, in all seriousness, though, do you think if you asked people, particularly people who don't have both a toilet and a phone, something that you and I and most of our viewers, I think, take for granted, what would they choose? Because I've seen some reports, some research papers, which suggest and. I'm not quite sure how they're asking the question that if, if people had to choose between one or the other, they'd rather have a phone than a toilet. Well, I guess they've been finding ways to, to handle their nature, nature's needs for, for, for thousands of years and, and phones can advance them and connect them. I mean, the big thing obviously technology does is it connects all of us together and it makes us the world much smaller. It allows us to know what's happening in other parts of the world. And and in general, it, it opens up society. I mean, I've, I've, been, I've, I've been fortunate. I've traveled to a lot of places in the world. New Guinea is one of my favorite countries to travel. And I watched, I've watched in the multiple times I've been there how it's developed over time. And yet, you know, that society continues to evolve. Um, it's very interesting to see how people evolve over time. Yeah, I'd love to go to New Guinea. I haven't been there. So as I said, you, uh, you were the former CEO of Snowflake Computing. And you've been with Microsoft a long time. You're uh, involved with their, their data businesses of one kind or another. You work directly with Bill Gates. Why did you choose to write this book, Bob? You're not known as an author. What, did, what do you feel you have to say that hasn't been said before? We've done many, many shows on AI of one kind or another, and sometimes it's hard to figure out any new messages. What do you offer that hasn't been said before? Well, I think what the book is really all about is about the evolution of technology over, since the advent of the digital computer, and, and in particular, how data has changed and the data products that have helped to shape the lives of, the, of everybody in the world today. And, and I felt like I had something to say about that. I thought that, that, uh, that I could teach some people some things about the technology and also about values and the importance of imbuing values into companies, particularly technology companies as they grow. So I had something to say, and I wanted, and I, and I thought people could learn something, and I hope that that just about anyone who reads the datapreneurs will learn something that they hadn't hadn't known before. You use the D word, Bob. Data. It's a word that's, as you know, thrown around sometimes a little too liberally. What do you mean by this word, and why do you uh, title the book "The Datapreneurs" as a play on entrepreneurs? Of course. Sure. Well, data is is information that is collected by digital computers, and and in the early part of digital computing, that data was very only that was only very structured data, the kind of things that you would see when in a business system or when you're purchasing something, you know, dollars and cents sort of things. Over time, we've seen more and more kinds of data evolve, uh, data that's more flexible that comes out of large internet systems, semi-structured data text and in particular english text has been a very very important source of data and we now live in a world where there are uh many different kinds of data being generated with things like video audio 
uh, all the conferencing that's happening. It's amazing, rich sources of information, pictures, all of these are sources of information that can be leveraged in the future. And when I started writing the book and thinking about how to tell the story, uh, I, I decided that I wanted to tell the story through the, the incredible technologists that I've had the, the opportunity to work with over the years and to tell a little bit about their story and the contribution that they made. And so I talked about that wanting to tell the story of the data entrepreneurs, and we quickly shortened that to the datapreneurs. Uh, Steve came up with that, my co-author, and, and it seemed to stick. We've had Shoshana Zuboff on the, the show, uh, Bob. I'm sure you're familiar with her work. Uh, her best-known book is The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. Do you buy any of her thesis that we've created with what you call these datapreneurs, uh, a, a, a horribly intrusive surveillance system where we're being watched all the time, where we're giving big, big data companies like Microsoft and Google and Apple and Amazon and all the others our data and they're watching us all the time and they know everything about us. Is that a, a fair analysis? Is there any truth in it? Yes, certainly there's truth in it. Um, and, and right now, ev almost everything we do is, is leaves a data trail associated with it. Every time we buy something at the store using a credit card, uh, I mean, even when we drive and, and the cameras that co can collect license plates and things like that uh, across intersections and things, yeah, there's a lot of data being collected about us. And that can be very dystopian. I mean, it can, it can, it can take us in a very dystopian direction. Uh, there's some concerns reasonably about how other societies, um, in particular in China, might be working with that data to restrict the movement of their people. These are all potential serious concerns. And yet we live in a world where we're collecting all this information and it's extremely valuable for us as, in, as people. It helps to make our lives a lot better by allowing us to, to, to get access to information and, and to be able to do things very quickly. Um, it, advertising obviously is, is very directed at us right now. It's very targeted. It, it, it allows them to be more effective. Uh, in general, that's the way the society is working right now. We're collecting a vast amount of data about everyone. And it's interesting that younger people are very accepting of this. And, and they are more willing to even record their lives with these same companies. I mean, these same companies you talk about, like Instagram, Facebook, that are collecting this vast swath of data, which they are. The fact is, is that, you know, millions, hundreds of millions of people are recording their lives, everything that happens to them that they think is significant in the form of pictures and statements and things like that. They're recording that in these systems willingly. So, yes, that's happening, but people seem to have accepted it. I wonder, though, uh, Bob, and it's not really the focus of this conversation or your book, whether I'm not 100 percent you're, you're right on those young people. But if you are, whether they know how their data is being used on platforms like TikTok and Instagram and, and YouTube, and if they knew and if they understood how targeted the advertising was, they might be a little uh, less liberal in, in how they self-broadcast. But Coming back to datapreneurs and AI, I wonder, we've had this conversation before. In fact, I had a whole conversation with my old friend, John, John Borthwick, who um, uh, is uh, an early stage uh, venture investor in, in New York at uh, Betaworks. You're familiar with, obviously, with data and with Microsoft. Um, the, the engine of this new AI revolution, and your book is 
well-timed on this front is OpenAI. And OpenAI, in some ways, is being financed by Microsoft. They made a, a $13 billion bet. They're a major investor and partner, and they're using the Azure platform, I think, to, to power their OpenAI platforms, ChatGPT, and so on. Where is OpenAI's or ChatGPT's intelligence coming from? Is it deriving the intelligence from the data that we've all put out there on Instagram and Twitter and Reddit? Is that a fair analysis that we couldn't have open AI or this current AI revolution without social media? We certainly couldn't have it without the internet. Let me say that. And all of the, where it's coming from is the vast amounts of data that, that is collected every day and generated by people every day. I mean, the data comes from people ultimately and our writings and, and what we're doing, our actions and what we're doing. And now for the first time, we have machines that through, through neural networks, these vast neural networks with you know, billions of, of, of digital neurons inside them, making connections between those neurons in a similar, you know, at least conceptually similar way to the way neurons work in our brain, certainly modeled it at one level after that. Uh, these things are now absorbing a vast, this vast amount of content and are able to, 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 to essentially create their own perspective on what that means. And uh, the training process that each one of these machine learning uh, AI systems goes through, these large huge neural network models go through shapes what the viewpoint of that model is and the information that it has. And that's why I say the values of organizations get imbued in the products that we create. I think that I think that's always been true of technology products, but it's incredibly true of AI systems where these things are trained based on a very specific specific and what's turning out to be very important, highly curated set of data, the higher the quality of the data it, that goes into these models, the better the results seems to be. So should we be celebrating that or fearing that if indeed, and you talk about neural networks, which are these artificial neural networks, which in some ways are replicating the human brain, artificial brains, um, if they're replicating the value of big companies and the two major companies that are still competing in this space on top of AI are Microsoft and Google. Um, should we be fearful of that or should we be happy? Uh, we've done a number of shows with people warning us about the values of these big companies. Margaret Mitchell, for example, came on the show. She got fired by Google uh, for being rather naughty. Um, Gary Marcus has also been on the show several times. Uh, warning us about the behavior of these big companies. I'm not suggesting that Microsoft are any worse than Google or Google any worse than Microsoft, but you're a, a veteran of these big companies. Why should we trust them? They're big bureaucracies, and they're run by guys like yourself who want to make a lot of money for the shareholders. What's moral about you? Well, let me tell you what we should be, we should be happy about. Uh, and, 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 and this has just happened in the last three months, is that since ChatGPT came out late last year, uh, through a series of events, really starting with Facebook, Meta, uh, releasing a, a model, a very, very well-built model called Llama into researchers, through a series of leaks and, and then progressions that have happened in the open source community, 
we have seen an incredible explosion of new models being developed by literally thousands of researchers, thousands of data scientists around the world working with open source. And those models are rapidly increasing in performance. Now, the really large models that have been built by companies like, like OpenAI or Google are still performing at the very top of the tests that, that are done for the, for the quality of these models. But these open source models, which have really only come into existence in the last few months, are rapidly approaching them in capabilities. And if you focus on specific tasks, they can actually outperform really large models like GPT-4. And probably more interestingly, they're much smaller to run and much more cost effective to both run and to train. Uh, you, can, you can do what's called fine tuning of these models for very specific data sets for just really thousands of dollars in compute time. So all of this new innovation is happening and we're not going to see, we didn't know this in December, we really didn't. Um, whether we'd see four models coming out of big companies, much like we see just three clouds. Or is it going to be just like three clouds or is it going to be an open source situation? It's now clear it's going to be open source with really hundreds of choices for people. And, and I think that's a very good thing. I think that's a very good thing. Yeah, I have to admit, I'm not convinced by what you're saying on a couple of fronts. Firstly, at the beginning of the Web 2 revolution, we heard all about open source and openness and diversity. And in the end, there are only two or three winners. It, it, technology, and you know this at Microsoft better than anyone, it, by definition, for better or worse, it doesn't reflect the morality or even the, the, the smartness of the companies. It's a winner-take-all business. It always has been and it always will be. And the other thing that I'm not sure about is whether we should actually celebrate open source. I mean, it's a sexy name, but what is, exactly does it mean? It just means that more people have their hands on this technology, but it doesn't mean we should trust them anymore. And if anything, especially given the bad actors out there, all the corruption, the anonymity, the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, the crypto pirates and all the rest of it, isn't that by definition particularly worrying since um, the, 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 the world of AI can so easily be corrupted and turned against itself? We've We've been telling ourselves stories since the 19th century of creating machines which turn out to rule us. Um, isn't what you observe with this open source revolution, won't that make that more rather than less likely? I truly believe that transparency and visibility is the only antidote to the concerns that you're raising. Uh, we, th look, these are tools that are that have been created by people. AI is a tool that has been created by people. It will be used by people for every possible purpose, the good, the bad, and the evil. Uh, but ultimately, the people that are, 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 are engaging these tools are the ones responsible for their behaviors. And that's a very important thing. And, and we must and we have to be able to hold people accountable for the actions that they take with, with the tools that they're given. And that was true, you know, that's true whether it's a gun or it's true whether it's a spammer or it's true whether it's somebody using one of these new AI tools in a deep fake. I mean, these are just, these are just things that have emerged over time, capabilities that people have. I remember when a picture meant that it was guaranteed, right? You got a picture when I was growing up, it was built on film. I mean, you know, take a picture, you don't, those were not altered. It was very difficult to alter a picture. Now we know that images can be altered at will 
uh, with things like Photoshop. And of course, videos shortly will be able to be altered at will with AI. So these tools change society in a variety of ways and need and require us to be careful of new dangers. But they're used by people and, and we'll find ways to fight against it. And, and in general, the thing I will say is that for every evil and nasty thing done with AI, I think there'll be 10 or 100 incredible solutions that will emerge that will help our lives lives and improves our lives. Uh, Bob, um, a lot of statements being made recently, collective statements uh, warning everyone about the existential risk of AI. One recently came out signed by Sam Altman and the DeepMind CEO, Demis Hassabis, uh, people from MIT and Microsoft CTO, Kevin Scott, I'm sure you know. Why are these people signing these open letters, warning the world of the existential risk of the technology that these people are actually developing? Well, I think they're, I think they're raising awareness appropriately that, that this technology is advancing at a very rapid rate, and we're really not exactly sure how it will advance in the future. Uh, what, I, what I would say is right now, the AI is, is an assistant to us. It can do some things on, on, on behalf of us. It can help us and make us more pr productive. And we'll see a wide variety of things come out that will we'll do that. Over time, and I think this is over five years, 10 years, and then beyond, the AI will continue to get smarter and smarter. And ultimately, it will reach the point where it, is, it has an intelligence level that is comparable to an average person. And then beyond that, it will continue. I mean, it has the potential to continue to get smarter because it has access to all of the world's knowledge. And the circuits that run inside the, these AI systems run a lot faster than the neurons in our brains do. So it does have the potential to get smarter than we are. And the concerns that people are, are issuing are around that time, which is sometime well into the future. Now here, I think the solution is, is, is again very clear and it's around values and ensuring that we instill within these AI systems values that are coherent with what we care about as people. And this is where I, you know, one of the things I, I found in writing the book and, and one of the, the things I think I can add to the conversation is when I was a young man, I, I read most good part of Isaac Asimov's 400 plus novels that he wrote, novels and, and books that he wrote. And in the last couple of years, I've picked up and I've been focusing again on, on Asimov and what he said, particularly with robotics. And, yeah, and his three laws of robotics. Remind us of what they are and why that's valuable, Bob. Yeah, you bet. Um, you know, the first law of robotics is that a robot must must not harm, must not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. Who makes these laws? I mean, isn't that obvious? Who would argue otherwise? Well, let's start with that. I think the military will argue with that. But we I already mean, have that. We're never going to be able to. I mean, the, the reality is... I agree with is you. We have killer robots. You know, we've had drones. We've had we've had these these cruise missiles that are effectively autonomous killer robots really for a long, long time. We've got radar. I mean, you could argue that radar is used to kill people. Well, we, well, let's be clear. There's a difference between people kill, but here's the difference. Let me be clear about this. This is a very important difference. There's a difference between people using tools to kill people and robots killing people on their own behalf. And that's what Asimov is saying here. Is okay, that so, but just to be clear on these laws, are these moral laws put together by Asimov or laws you believe should be formalized by the UN or something like that? These are laws that were put together by Asimov that I think can provide guidance for us as we 
be incorporate this technology and this this machine intelligence into society. And yes, as we do do regulations that are appropriate for it. I mean, ultimately there will need to be some. And 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 we should think that, about that in the context of how these technologies can help people in the long run. The thing that Asma okay. that first, we, we got the first law is that a robot shouldn't be used to to injure a human being. I think most people would agree on that. The second law and the third law, what are they, Bob? Yeah, second law is a robot must obey the orders given to it by human beings, except where such orders would conflict with the first law. Yeah, but you just said earlier that we're going to create machines that are smarter than us so how are we going to be able to keep well to okay just, just hold for a second just can you just hold me for just one one of second course. let me complete the three laws and then i'll go back and i'll tell you how um the third law is a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second laws now recognize when asmok wrote this which is the 1940s remember that this came out these laws came out in 1942 before the digital computer was in, was invented Okay, and and uh, uh, Asimov was thinking about this in the context of robots, intelligent machines living amongst us as as machines that were part of, of society in one sense or another. Now, what what Asimov did, interestingly enough, he put electric aside, sheep. He wrote a wonderful short story on that. He wrote a lot of great short stories. <laughs> um, he, he wrote all over the place. A very creative man. Um, later in his career, he wrote a couple of, of robot novels. And in those novels, uh, the robots had become more sophisticated and would be what we would call an AGI or maybe even a superintelligence today. And in and he recognized, uh, actually saw the robots recognized it, that the three laws were insufficient. And so he Asimov created the zeroth law, which not that many people know about. It's it's that a robot may not harm humanity. Or allow, or by inaction, allow humanity to come to harm. So that's you know at that high level, that is that is the kind of relationship we need to establish with these smart machines. I think all, today they are tools. But it's no very abstract, Bob. I mean, we could have an argument about the machine's responsibility to the environment. There are people who would argue one thing and over another. I mean, we're never going to get any agreement on this, are we? Well, we have to get enough agreement over time. In general, we get agreement on the things, on, on, on the important things that matter. You we know, don't why... know. I mean, look at the debate about global warming. Look at the debates in America over politics, over law, over the last election. No one seems to agree on anything. But we track. I mean, here, this is where you either an optimist, you're either a human optimist or a human pessimist, ultimately. I can argue that we can destroy ourselves, you know, by next year, this time next year. And that gauntlet has lived over me. It's lived over both of us our whole lives with the nuclear weapons that we've all lived under. And, you know, I ducked and covered as a kid when that was, you know, a very real thing for people. That danger was put in the in, in the background for a long time. Now it sure feels like it's coming back. I got news for you. That one feels like it's coming back. People can harm people in so many different ways. AI is just another tool that people will be able to use. And of course, we can use it for negative things. But ultimately, we do, you know, the arc of, of humanity does track in a positive direction. At least I believe that. Yeah, I'm not convinced of the evidence, but we'll see. Uh, every right to believe that, by the way. I, I mean, you can you can be a pessimist, and certainly if you watch the news on any given day. Well, yeah, I mean, you can argue it both ways, and and that might require another book. Your your book comes with a very nice um, blurb from your friend Satya uh, Nadella, the 
chairman and CEO of Microsoft. He says that you rightly refocus us on the people, not just the algorithms and machines behind the next wave of artificial intelligence. It's kind of ironic, Bob, given that these machines are, in a sense, threatening to replace us. Tell us about the people you focus on in the book and, and why that's important. Well, these are all technologists that, that were focused on solving problems that, that really were, were instrumental at the time and, and allowed society to move forward in, 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 in a number of ways. Take, for example, the work that we did while I was at Microsoft to, to, with SQL Server and, and Windows Server to allow businesses all around the world to have access to computing at a much, much lower cost than they could have than, than was previously possible. And the ability to move technology into more and more people's hands and make it and 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 make it accessible to them is really based on the work that's done at companies like Microsoft, as well as at some of these other smaller companies like Snowflake, which was a small company when I started and now is, is having a major impact on people as they work with large amounts of data. Ultimately, it comes back to people. And the thing that I, and the reason why all of this is tied together is because I was fortunate enough to work with a lot of people. I saw a lot of different values through that process. I learned, you know, some of them good, not some of them not so good. Sometimes our Microsoft values in the early days weren't fully aligned to where I would want them to be. To put um, it mildly, I mean, you were involved in the antitrust case. You know how... You are on the front lines of that. You know, yeah, I'm a, I'm, bullying Bill Gates could be. I mean, he's also has some very good qualities, too. Well, I'm a reform monopolist. See, <laughs> I, what does know, that I would, mean? What do you mean? You're a reform. You are. You know why you're a reform monopolist? Because you were forced to be. Well, I went through. I watched the whole thing. I watched the whole thing. You, you didn't know. just watch it. You were involved in. I was part of the whole thing. I was. I was. In, I was in the middle of the whole thing. I testified. Yeah, I you were involved. So to call yourself a reformed, uh, anti, a reform monopolist, is to say someone who was forced to go to AA as a reformed. Oh, okay, so look, we, the world. Look, let me say the following: When we were working in nineteen in the nineteen nineties. Microsoft created something that, that had never been created before. The rules were being the rules of, of, of how technology is governed came out of that Microsoft lawsuit. Microsoft made some mistakes along the way. And I mean, you lost, which enabled startup companies like Google to prosper. Now we have them. The truth is, is that Google probably would have prospered without that without that case. But it's also true that that case had a huge impact on Microsoft culturally. And look what came out of it. Look at what 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 Satya and Brad Smith and others have done, mm. and the culture that 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 they've been able to build from that, and the values that have come from that. You know, Microsoft learned a lot in that in that time period. I learned a lot in that time period. Um, and today, Microsoft is viewed as a leader in terms of ethics when it comes to technology, and for good reason, because they're doing good work. So should we be trusting Microsoft? I mean, Altman's in bed with, uh, I'm not sure literally, but Altman's in bed with uh, Microsoft uh, rather than Google. Should we be trusting uh, the senior people at uh, Microsoft rather than the senior people at Google on this? To your point, uh, executives at companies always are, are part of companies that have a set of objectives, including objectives to their shareholders. So should we trust them completely? No. Do I trust Microsoft more than some other companies? Yes, because their business model is more aligned with my interests, not the interest of an advertiser. Um, just like I trust Apple more than I trust other companies because I spend tons of money on Apple and they, they're happy to take it and, and keep my data private. 
So, you know, companies have different companies will set up different values for how they work with other organizations based largely on what their commercial model is. And, and one of the things we will see, and one of the things I'm working on with, with a number of these smaller companies in the AI space, is how we can use tools like AI to help businesses. For example, one of my companies, DocuGami, allows companies to understand what's happening inside the many business contracts they have. They're essentially opaque to them, except through lawyers. Trying to extract- yeah, the more lawyers we can get rid of, uh, Bob, the better. Yeah, they're expensive and difficult. I think that's my experience. Well, the legal field is going to be very dramatically impacted by AI. Let me say that it is going to have the biggest impact on legal of anything in the history of time. Yeah, we uh, we've done some shows on the automation of, of of the legal business already. There's some startups in Silicon Valley. Um, dealing with that so finally let's talk about the future of humanity um when it comes to all this as the promise of ai maybe it will or won't be realized we've had some optimists on the show too the english novelist jeanette winterson believes that ai can help us love each other more and toby walsh a very distinguished ai expert in australia believes that it can bring out our empathy as we move forward into this world in 10, 15, 20 years, when you come back on the show, how can it bring out our humanity? Clearly, we're outsourcing a lot of our intelligence. There may no longer be lawyers. Maybe there won't be even software engineers. But what about humans themselves? How are they going to be enriched by the AI revolution? Well, I think the first thing is we're going to have, we're going to be able to get so much more access to information and get things done in a, in a faster way. Uh, you know, we'll, we as people will have the ability to have a larger impact in the world because even if we don't have jobs, what Andreessen said about and how um, and how he he believe create more jobs than it will take away. So let's just just say that. And historically, certainly, he's been proven right. Now, I also will tell you one of the things I add a little footnote to Mark's comment is, is that. While, it's, while it may be true that a lot more jobs are created, it will also displace jobs, and that will be very problematic for the people that are involved in that. And that's been true over time. Technology has off, always replaced jobs as they come along with different roles, and it has impacted and displaced some people. And we will see that. We will see that for sure. But I think that, that AI will allow us to focus more on what we care about. And it's really interesting. I, I mean, to me, it's fascinating because this is going to impact far more the generations behind me, the people that are, are, are today just in school and are maybe just graduated, they're going to have a much bigger impact on their lives in AI. And it certainly seems to me that the people that, that, that I know that are of that generation care about their experience in life much more. And it's very possible AI can enhance that in so many, in so many different ways, amongst them allowing people to have more time. 